Beyond the Collabo Babble is now in session. What, what I would say we should be doing right now and all state government should be doing is tackling and looking at both interpersonal racism, which is racism that someone might have a, a bias. And sometimes it's implicit, right? It's unconscious and we don't know what that, you know, why we feel the way we feel. Um, but there are tests you can take, the Harvard Implicit Bias Test. I'll plug that if you haven't taken that. It's really um, interesting and helps you reflect on your own biases because it's normal to have biases. It's what we do with them that matters. Beyond the Collab of Babel, meet the people behind the studies, programs, projects, and initiatives. Beyond the Collab of Babel, keeping you motivated and focused through the challenges. Beyond the Collab of Babel, sparking innovation, improvement, and reform. Beyond the Collab of Babel, listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead, take action. Listen, learn, lead. Take action. Welcome to Beyond the Collabo Babble, a podcast committed to sharing stories of collaboration, systems improvement, and systems reform in the Colorado courts, and introducing you to the people leading these efforts and taking action. The star of today's podcast is Anne Marie Braga, Deputy Executive Director for the Community Partnerships, Colorado Department of Human Services. Anne Marie came to CDHS in 2019 with 25 years of experience in the health and human services field. This role ensures the success of the whole person, whole family, whole community. Approach to human services delivery, while also supporting partnerships with other agencies and organizations. She also provides leadership and direction for each of the offices of the department, such as early childhood, child welfare, aging and adult services, and community behavioral health. But her biggest passion is engaging with the community and fighting to end racism, and all the isms. I am your Collabo Babble host, Bill Delisio, the Family Law Program Manager at the Colorado State Court Administrator's Office, Court Services Division. Good afternoon, Anne-Marie. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. That is so, I was so excited. We met on a phone call. Um, one of our colleagues, Gretchen Russo, decided to connect you and me and Jenna Quigley and Allison Young just because you were newer to your position. And I learned that you started the Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity, or DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, at CDHPE, right? Well, I was, I was the interim director at that office and did some work there. It, it had already existed before I was there. But yeah, I did a oh. lot of work when I was at CDPHE, yeah, the Public Health Department. Okay, well, anyway, we were talking and... I thought you'd be a great guest and I thought you'd have a lot to say on that topic, which I think is very, it's always very important, but right now it's, it's been something that we're all thinking about a lot of agencies. I believe even CDHS right now is looking at, or may have hired somebody into that role and judicial has recently hired um, a position Sumi Lee to, to help diversify the bench. And so all of our agencies are looking through this lens a little bit more. So I wanted to bring you on and just, have you share with us what you do at CDHS and, and some, some learn some lessons on equity, inclusion, and diversity. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited. I love talking about this. <laughs> All right. Well, now the first question I ask my guests is what does beyond the collab babble mean to you? Well, to be honest, um, when I first heard that, I had to read it a couple of times and uh, collaboration is really important to me and it has really been my whole career. So when I read the collab babble and beyond the collab babble, I thought, this is the real deal. Like they don't want to just talk about it. They want action. So I really, really liked that. Um, before this position, I worked at the department of public health for 15 years where I focused on, uh, children, youth and families, equity and inclusion work, as you mentioned. And then also I was a liaison with all the 64 Colorado counties. So I know a lot about all the areas around the, the state. Um, and then, you know, my mentor heard that uh, Director Barnes, who's the director at CDHS, was looking for a deputy who had my skill set. So I applied and here I am. I get to collaborate all the time with folks like you. Yeah, well, thanks for that. And, and yeah, so like, why don't we go a little more, bit more into that? Just uh, the, the, the story of sort of your uh, journey to becoming the de deputy executive director for community partnerships, what that means a little bit more and, and maybe how that, if you, if you have some ideas on how that ties to courts, I know we talk about child welfare, but your, your programs go pretty, pretty broad, early childhood, aging and adult services, uh, behavioral health. So any of that and just your journey. Yeah. So, um, it's been a great journey. I really feel like this position was, um, 
like created for me. It just feels like a great fit. And I'm really grateful to my mentor who is Karen McGowan. She actually used to be the deputy director for, um, for Department of Public Health and Environment, um, now does stuff with oil and gas. And so it's still in the state system, but she found it and told me about it. And I was like, this is so cool because it does get, I do get to work with, um, you know, early childhood, um, young people who are in, um, Division of Youth Services is actually overseen by Perry May, but I do a lot of work with child welfare. So we have, there's a lot of connections there. Um, and so honestly, um, my journey was being at, uh, state health, you know, I worked a lot with youth and young adult, did a lot of positive youth development work. So actually I worked with judicial way back then about 10 years ago plus, um, or, and then more recent. So eight to 10 years ago when we worked on building a youth system in our state to try to get judicial, um, and, um, uh, human services, health, public health, Medicaid, like all the different players, right, to work together to build a strong youth system. And we really took what we call this positive youth development approach, which really is founded in equity. And how do we make sure that young people are part of the conversation and, and helping us develop the programs we're developing? So I did that for a long time um, and then uh, worked with counties across the state, as I mentioned briefly. And then when I came, uh, when this job came up, it's a really big mix of working with other state agencies, other partners on these different topics, and working with external partners such as the uh, counties across the state and other nonprofits and community residents and community members, which is really what I'm trying to make, bring in more to our department. Um, we already have a strong um, way of doing that, but I just, I, that's really important to me. I think government can always do better at talking with the, the folks who are most affected and having them be part of decision-making. So the public health is really interesting to me right now in particular because of the Family First Prevention and Services Act and prevention, something that we're thinking about as courts and we're even thinking beyond our juvenile courts and what does prevention mean and maybe what does that mean going upstream? Mm -hmm. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And then you also mentioned that you originally came from the East Coast. So before you got to Colorado, were you in public health back East or no, did, so did Colorado start that for you? Yeah, good question. So um, yeah, so uh my background is social work. So I got my master's in social work when I lived in New York City. Um, but my, my journey, I actually was born in South Africa. We moved to the Netherlands, New Jersey, then Arkansas. So I've lived in a lot of different places. I got my bachelor's in psychology in Arkansas, moved to New York to get my master's. And after getting my master's there, I was there on 9-11 actually. And um, uh, my husband, well, he wasn't my husband yet, but my fiance at the time lost his job, um, just cause the economy had tanked. And so we thought, let's come out to Colorado. Um, cause my mom lived out here. My sister lived out here. So I wanted to get closer to family. He wanted to get closer to snowboarding. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a win-win. So we came out and when I was here, I started working with, um, doing some youth work. That's the work that I did in, in New York as well. I worked with inner city youth. Um, and then I also worked in Arkansas with, um, uh, uh, as a case manager for teenage females who'd been abused and neglected. And actually we're going through ju the judicial, judicial system. So I had a little bit of both of those pieces. So when I got to Colorado, um, I um, ended up STD-PHE doing youth and young adult health work, but really on the system side of it, right? Not just, not the direct service like I had been doing. Um, and after working there for a little bit, you know, you just kind of work your way up through the system. Um, just um, I took on some early childhood work, uh, and then it kind of took off from there. Uh, most of it was really prevention, though, and rooted in, up, you know, root cause kind of work. So human services is a little different because we're working with people who've already been into the system in some way. But there are so many ways that we can be coordinating across all these agencies. Because, um, you know, families and youth and the people we're serving, they're not experiencing their problems in isolation of one another. They're just living their life and all of the things are happening at once. So it's incumbent upon us, I feel like, as state agencies to really work together better um, and work with our local partners to make sure that families get what they need in the end. And would you say that this is sort of a mind shift or a mindset shift for maybe child welfare or courts because in public health, this has kind of been the paradigm for quite a while, root cause analysis, really trying to solve the structural problem that might have led to this as opposed to um, where we are, and I'll just use the phrase further downstream, where maybe many systems have either not um, been successful in their interventions or maybe they haven't even been 
uh, led to the correct services or interventions that could have prevented them from ending up in our in our in our agencies. Yeah, that's a fantastic observation. Um, I do think there are people all along the spectrum, right? So I've met folks within human services that totally get primary prevention and are like, "How do we move us?" Um, into that realm. And the, I don't know how much it sounds like you you mentioned family first. So the, you know, looking at prevention, how do we um, get child welfare, not big C, big W, the child welfare program, but just for the welfare of children, how do we get more upstream and get communities? And a lot of communities are doing amazing work um, with their human services, public health. Um, Boulder's one of those ones that I've called out um, a lot uh, because of the work that they've been doing um, for a long time developing something they call the Colorado Partnership for Thriving Families, and it's public health and uh, human services and some other folks as well, but state and local kind of all working together to say, how do we um, just align our services really well to make sure that, you know, public health continues to do their great work and human services can pick up where we need to, but, um, but we're all uh, pointing our arrows in the same direction and um, are on the same page about, you know, how these problems evolve and how we prevent them in the first place. So I do think people are, I am pulling some people along, I feel like a little bit, um, but not really dragging anyone, which is great. So I think people get it once we talk about it, but it is a little bit of a paradigm shift for some. Yeah. And I, you mentioned Boulder and I, and I was actually reflecting on this uh, for another reason, but they're called the Boulder Department of Housing and Human Services. They actually combined them, one of the few in the nation. Yep. And they put the phrase housing first, which seems like um, sometimes in courts we can identify that someone's homeless, but we can't actually address their homelessness. And so how do we help somebody if they don't have some of those basic needs being met? So that's what this, uh, what, I forget the exact name of the initiative, but I'm imagining this initiative is designed to actually meet people where they are and try and provide them with housing, health care behavioral health care, as opposed to just maybe ticking those things off on a, on a report that says you need help in these areas, but yep. um, maybe we don't have the service for you. Yeah, absolutely. And the, uh, the only thing I would add to that too, as an overlay is this thing, the two gen, the two gen approach or two generation approach, which is looking at um, the, you know, the, the different generations in a person's life. And uh, with, with youth, we're looking at them and their parents. How do we make sure? Cause a lot of times when a young person is having um hard things going on in their life. It's usually hard things are going on in their parents' life, right? So how do we make sure their parents have access to jobs and education and opportunities so that the young people get um, the benefits of that as well? So there's also that overlay. Um, so there's a lot of really great work happening in Colorado. It's really impressive. And uh, I'm still learning about human services here, but, um, but I've learned a lot so far. COVID sort of ramped up my orientation yeah. on a lot, drilling down into a lot of the programs. So it's been, it's been a pleasure. I'm, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. Okay. I, I wanted to get into like, once again, sort of through your career, how you were bringing um, DEI, the DEI lens to the organizations you've worked in, but is there anything else from the public health standpoint that you just wanted to make sure we covered here today? You know, honestly, I weave in the public health standpoint <laughs> still everywhere. Okay. So I'll probably bring it up a few more times as well. Um, just okay. because I think it, it really aligns well with all the work that we're doing. So yeah, I think I'm mm -hmm. good there. Okay, well then, you know, tell us about the work you've done in DEI in, in different organizations and sort of how your perspective, how you come at it, how you define it. Um, so some of our listeners might be really studying this topic and, and incorporating it into their work. Maybe they're just starting out down that journey. But, you know, how can you, you kind of help someone, whether they're, they're just getting into this, this space and starting to figure out how it applies to the work they do or they've been maybe doing it for a while and they just maybe need to be re-energized or given a new perspective? Yeah. So uh, maybe if I can share a little bit about my journey through it, it might help others as well. And then I'll kind of address those points. So as I mentioned, you know, I've done case management in rural Arkansas, very different experience than doing youth development work with inner city youth in New York. <laughs> then I came to Colorado, like I mentioned, um, working in the early childhood arena. So I've had in every role that I've had, I've always focused on including those who are most impacted by the programs and policies in the decisions we make, right? So that sounds like a super, oh yeah, that sounds good. It's really hard in practice, especially I feel like um, with state government, I feel like we like to put up a lot of boundaries and say, we can't do that. You know, uh, like having meetings with uh, some of those folks, um, like take, for example, young people, right? You can't meet between eight to five because they're in school. So, and some of them are not, but the ones that we were working with at um, the health department were. And so we had to be thoughtful and be like, okay, well, we're going to have to 
hire people who are willing to work after five or on weekends to work with these young people. If we're going to work with them, we really have to meet them where they are, right? And make sure that we make um, time. So there's a lot of flexibility that's needed. So for example, one way I've influenced um, things at uh, CDPHE was we developed a youth advisor model at the department. Um, this was almost a decade ago and other state agencies have replicated this model, including CDHS, which is really cool. So it's like full circle. I came to the department and they were telling me about the youth advisors they had hired. And I just smiled, you know, deep down knowing that that started at CDPHE. And what that was, was hiring diverse young people into roles, um, that they were not interns. They, we call them youth advisors very much on purpose because they were like financial advisors, right? Except they're youth advisors and they gave us advice and guidance on what young people need, what they're going through, how to do TikTok, except that didn't exist back then, like those sorts of things. So how do we speak to the people that we're serving? Um, and so for me, the youth advisor model was a way to get at uh, those folks because I was my job was to oversee adolescent health in Colorado. So that's something that like I created to make sure we're hearing from people most affected. Um, but before, you know, I mentioned already um, in the intro, I think, but I think that my most impactful role prior to coming to CDHS was really leading the Office of Health Equity at CDPHE on this interim basis. So uh, I was asked to, someone retired, I was asked to come in, hire the new director, do an environmental scan or an assessment of the office and what it needs to be focused on um, and kind of develop like a recommendations for the office moving forward. So it was a five month gig. I, I left luckily my, uh, my supervisor at the time who's still there. She's amazing. Her name's Rachel Hudson. She leads our maternal and child health work at CDPHE. She loaned me out to be able to do this because there was no way I could do both roles at once. And it was a fantastic opportunity. And so what I did was, um, I integrated equity into the hiring process over so those listeners out there who, I mean, one of the big things I keep hearing about is how we recruit, how we hire, right? So there are simple things you can do that really make a huge difference. So one example is um, I took out the term or the sentence, we are an equal opportunity employer that we put on there. It's something like that, right? It's the governmental thing. I took that out. I rewrote it and made it more real and meaningful. And I said, we are actively seeking diverse applicants for this role. We want to become a more inclusive workplace, yada, 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 whatever. Right. And it's the statement that we put on there. I got feedback from people who didn't even make it to the interview process that just sent us an email saying, this was the first time I actually feel like government really wanted me. Um, and they were people of color who were and shared that in their emails with us. So simple things like the language that we use, right? Also allowing for, which our, our state does, but uh, making sure that you don't have to have a master's to be in this role, right? Like education can be a barrier for some folks um, who have great experience. And so how do you make sure that you have substitutions for those sorts of things? Um, also thinking really from the beginning, Who's hiring? Who's going to be interviewing these folks? Making sure that that group is diverse so that when you're um, having the conversation about how did that candidate do? How did that candidate do? You know, you don't have, um, you know, they're like me kind of, you know, sometimes it's natural and it's a natural bias to have. Um, and so when that happens, sometimes we don't get the diversity that we really need. Um, so those are just some examples. The other thing I did when I was at the office is I met with a hundred plus, I think it was 106, if I remember correctly, internal and external partners who really helped create the vision for the office and really taught me what folks want and need from government. So um, these were, I was very uh, careful about making sure they were folks at various levels. So power, as um, your listeners probably already know, the huge piece of this underlying equity work. So making sure that power, um, that different people at different levels of power weighed in, right? You're not just interviewing all the leaders. Um, making sure that, of course, racially, ethnically, they're diverse, uh, men and women, LGBT. Like I tried to think of all the different dimensions of diversity. One that I haven't mentioned yet, very important, is rural-urban. Um, that is very important in Colorado because the rural areas and the frontier areas are very different from urban areas in a lot of ways. Um, and so making sure we've heard all those voices. So I really made sure to get a, a, a to do, really do my homework to make sure that whatever I learned from that was really valid. And we knew that these were the right recommendations moving forward. So that was a really um, exciting time for me to put these recommendations together. And just to tell you with the hiring process, after making some tweaks to it, um, we actually had a candidate pool of eight people um, to interview. And out of the eight people, there were only two white women 
which in public health in Colorado, that's huge. Not that I'm actually a white woman, so there's nothing, nothing wrong with white women. I support them. Um, and it was amazing to see this more diverse um, applicant pool. Um, and we ended up hiring Webb Brown, who is the Office of Health Equity Director still, and he's phenomenal, and um, many folks uh, know him, and um, he's great. So anyways, uh, so that's, that's how that story ended, which I was really excited to, to see that it was effective, the different changes we made. Um, so now that I'm at CDHS, I'm really incorporating all those learnings into the work we're doing. We have an initiative called Making CDHS a Great Place to Work, where we're really looking internally. This was before um, the, the last several months of COVID and everything. We've already had this on our, on our plate of how are we going to make sure the culture at CDHS is one of low turnover, right? People love what they do. They're in the right roles um, and really ensuring an equitable and inclusive work environment. And so we believe that it, that starts with rejecting racism and all the isms in all their forms and not just saying it, but really doing something. So um, what, what I would say we should be doing right now and all state government should be doing is tackling and looking at both interpersonal racism, which is the racism that someone might have a, a bias. And sometimes it's implicit, right? It's unconscious and we don't know what that, you know, why we feel the way we feel. Um, but there are tests you can take the Harvard implicit bias test. I'll plug that. If you haven't taken that, it's really um, interesting and helps you reflect on your own biases because it's normal not biases. It's what we do with them that matters. Um, and so that's one, one piece, right? How do we have these conversations with employees across the state, uh, especially some of our black employees right now with the murder of George Floyd are feeling lots of stuff, right? There it's hard and um, lots of trauma. I heard someone say something about, um, uh, they witnessed the lynching in broad daylight is, is, is the way it felt to them. And it's just, and I was like, wow, that's, that's so powerful. And yeah, like that's exactly what we saw. So I think folks were feeling um, a lot. And so how do we, how do we have dialogue amongst employees and work on that piece while we're also tackling and working on the systemic racism, which is the structures that we've had in place. Um, so for example, at CDPHE, uh, the director who asked me to be in my role for the Office of Health Equity was another white woman. And so a white woman asks another white woman she knows and likes and thinks is good and puts in a position. And folks, after I'd done it for a little bit, folks had said, well, why don't you should stay in this role? You're really good at this. And I was like, but that's the exact system, systematic and systemic racism that we want to get rid of, right? It's not that I'm a bad person or she was a bad person, but if she puts me in that position and we don't open it up, and allow for it to be competitive for people across the state to apply, then how are we ever going to get people of color and div or with lived experiences in these roles? So that, um, that was really um, an interesting moment in my career to, to kind of see that right in front of me. Um, and so I really think the systems change and this dialogue and dealing with interpersonal side of racism while really incorporating the voices of your employees and your partners that you're working with, like the community engagement, that that's the work that we really need to be doing um, to really make change. Yeah, well, you had some really good stuff in there. I'll try to unpack a few parts. The first one <laughs> Sorry, I wanted I to there's do... a lot. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's great. I, I didn't want to stop you because it was really interesting. And when you talk about some of the changes you made in the hiring process, uh, the one thing that I was thinking of, we're in a budget crisis, but many of the things you described didn't sound like they would have cost much money at all. So you just want to talk a little bit about that right now, like the things that we can, the steps we, we can take that are low cost and pretty straightforward and maybe even can be replicated like an agency, like judicial doesn't have to, they could take some of the documentation you've already created and say this, we could just make it fit for us. But some of the ways that we just rephrase things can work here as they did there. Absolutely. Like most of the stuff I did did not take money. We didn't even, we didn't pay to get a firm to help recruit. Like we did nothing like that. Um, I would say the, the biggest thing that took time, which is important for us to do anyway, are the relationship building and the community engagement work that I did. So as I was doing those internal and external interviews with all those folks to say, what should our office look like? I was plugging this position with them saying, I'm in this role now, but I'm not going to be in this role. I'm actually hiring it. Please send this to people, you know? So I spent the time individualizing it. You know, when you get those emails and it says, please pass this position on, here's a job posting and there's a link, right? That is not individualizing it for anybody. And so sometimes people will pick it up, but a lot of times it's just, we have too many emails, too much going on. So I think 
the big thing that I do is I put myself in the shoes of whatever audience you're wanting to reach. Right. And I think to myself, okay, if I'm a busy person answering all my emails and someone just sent me, here's a job posting, I might send it on to some folks. But if I got an email from you, Bill, and it said, Anne-Marie, we're trying to hire someone for this role. I know you probably know some people. Would you mind sending this on to three people, you know, you know, just adding that one step. So it doesn't take a lot of money. It does take a little bit more of my time, which is money, I guess, you know, when you look at it that way, but, mm-hmm. but it definitely um, is just more, it's just being more thoughtful and intentional about us trying to get that information out there. Yeah. And the other thing um, you mentioned that I had another guest, a former retired judge from New York who now lives in Colorado, Jan Rosa, and we were talking about the pandemic and how we are all going through this pretty much at the same time across the country, across the world. Um, and that it is very, very likely that many of us are experiencing a trauma response that we see in the families that we sometimes hope to serve, whether it's in court or human services. And maybe we don't, the silver lining, I think, as she put it, was like, maybe we can understand sometimes why people may have scattered thoughts and aren't going to be doing things in a, in a, a scheduled manner that we would think they they should and when we walk into our courtrooms that they might have some anxiety that like maybe now we're experiencing firsthand and and then you and then you also mentioned with the murder of George Floyd just some of our colleagues who are experiencing that differently and what that might be triggering and and trying to open up dialogue that's voluntary but not not forcing people to relive that trauma and so any other just thoughts around those what's maybe something we can take away from this moment to better serve our, our, our citizens, to better serve our customers, as well as being more kind and to one another and having a little more empathy to know that, that it's, it's affecting all of us differently and probably at different times. Oh, absolutely. To everything you said. Yeah, I can tell you one of the things, um, Director Barnes, so Director Michelle Barnes, she's the director of CDHS um, and is one of the reasons why I, I took the job um, because I, I sense in her often uh, an authenticity. I mean, she's really real. I think right now that is one of the most important things you can be and you might not get it right all the time. You might, you know, but being able to own it and call it out, like she has done such a great job of, of, um, making space for dialogue at our department. And so she, uh, she held, I think we have three different listening sessions for employees. They can sign up to speak and share about their, um, their experiences, how they're feeling, what they want to see, just open space for employees to speak. Um, some of it was really obviously sad, traumatic, their tears, right? We, there was a lot of really tough stuff to unpack. Um, and after the third one, we came to the next one saying, you know, first of all, we kept thanking, thank you for sharing your thing, you know, your feelings. I mean, that's a tough thing to do. Right. And, and just, um, and to help everyone learn and we commit to action. So immediately following that, we listened to all the stuff that all the, the suggestions they had and what they wanted to see. And we developed an equity action plan. I mean, I think it was a Thursday. We had this last conversation and, and, um, director Barnes said, um, next Tuesday, Anne-Marie will be presenting an action plan and she knows I had done this work. So it worked really nicely. Um, cause I kind of knew the things and especially doing those interviews with CDPHE kind of knew what needed to be in there, right. And how we needed to address having dialogue and training people and those sorts of things. So we put together an action plan right away and it's not perfect. I mean, I was like, we need to make it look nice. And then I was like, you know what? No, we don't. We need to just be real with it. Let's share it with other agencies. Here's where we are. You tell us what you think. So I think acting has made people like I've gotten a lot of emails from folks. We started an email address called CDHS great ideas at gmail.com or whatever. And people are flooding it with um, ideas for let's include it in our performance review process. Here's what we should do. And um, some people are just thanking us for, for letting them have space to talk about these things. Um, and um, we don't always get it right, of course, but we're working really hard to really listen and to um, learn and adjust and just to be real and honest and do what we say we're going to do. I know that seems like, right, that's something you should learn in kindergarten or whatever, like do what you say. But it, as you get into busy jobs in government, we all know it's sometimes we can't always fulfill all, our, all the things we say. So coming back to say, sorry, we're not going to be able to do this. And here's why that's the piece. Employees just want honesty. Right. And I think one reason why I I'm, I've been 
um, pretty good at that at CDHS is because I worked my way up through the state system and I was at the lower levels. And I remember looking up at those directors and just feeling like, like, are you ever going to follow up with this thing? You know? And so I've always felt like if I ever got there, I'm going to make sure I do. And I don't, I, I stay in touch and approachable and, and help employees. And so this is a time when it's really important to be as in touch as you can be, even if you can't understand the experiences firsthand, you can listen and you can act and, 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 and put them in power. Right. So we have a equity, diversity and inclusion subcommittee of our employee council. There were 20 people on it in February because it, it existed before. Now there's 88 people on it. And so how do we make sure that their voice is heard? So I took their ideas and that's what we put into the action plan that we developed. So it wasn't us just developing it in isolation. So I think it, it, it empowered folks to feel like, wow, what I'm saying is really going somewhere and something's happening with it. You know, so now we just have to make sure we deliver. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think going back to something you said earlier, that also just is concrete in my mind. And, and, and I think it is straightforward when you talk just about the hours that you make services available. Um, that's a, that's a matter of equity and inclusivity. And we know that that's very important. And I think all of us can understand that. And probably all of us could appreciate that um, because there's probably uh, services that we can't access throughout the day because of our jobs. And, and it's nice to know we can do it after hours, but some of our offices close after hours. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I think that, I mean, we're talking about the full spectrum here, but I think that's just a place to kind of like, let's not forget we can start in some of these areas and with these remote technologies that we've started to use some that we maybe didn't think we could do our jobs with mm-hmm. just four or five months ago, what are the possibilities moving forward? Have you been thinking about that for the work and, and, and can we actually be more inclusive now that we can access maybe technologies? Well, we're a little reticent to do telehealth or we're a little reticent to do court hearings remotely, but mm-hmm. hey, we're doing them now. Yeah, no, we've absolutely embraced technology. Um, uh, you know, uh, CDPHE has actually always been ahead of the game on work-life balance and working at home. So I actually worked from home every Wednesday for almost a decade. Um, it was my like reset day where I got to get read reports, get things done that you can't always get done in the office. Um, and so coming to CDHS, I mean, that was one of the things Director Barnes said, please move forward and push that because I want, I want to get to that place too. And some areas were, were um, open to that, some were not. COVID has just pushed us into our discomfort for some of us. Um, and for me, it was like, and I told, see, I told you it can work <laughs> and you can, you know, you can be balanced because I always tell folks too with employees that, you know, an employee will be just as, just as disengaged at ho- at work as they would be at home. I mean, it, it, that's not going to increase your engagement to be sitting in a cubicle, right? Like, so we need to be engaging employees anyway. So, um, but I think the, we've been doing what we call, I call them coffee talks just off of the SNL coffee talk thing from being in the mm-hmm. Northeast. <laughs> and, uh, and I have the uh, divisions, the different, I, I, um, uh, it's about 40 to 50 people or less um, is, the, is the work unit size. And I've been meeting with all the ones that I oversee just to be like, how are you guys? How are things going? How are you feeling? What are you hearing? What are the rumors out there? Just completely open space. Not like I have absolutely no agenda except to answer questions and be available. And I've noticed people really appreciating that because, you know, with the budget situation right now, right? That there's questions around that. There's questions around when do we go back to work? There's questions about equity and inclusion. And are we really going to walk the talk around certain things? So I think giving, um, people a space is good. But before I got, uh, before COVID, I did it in person. So I actually put them off. They were on my calendar. And I told, uh, um, Brian who helps me with my calendar and is amazing. I said, let's just push these off. Maybe we'll be back in July. Right. Is this is in March. And then by like May or like even before that, I was like, ah, this might not ever, ha- I, we might not be getting back right away. So what, let's do them virtually. Let's see what happens. Yeah. They have been fantastic and um, people are participating. And so I really think, and even the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, conversations, I would have told you as a social worker, those have to be done in person. You got to be there to feel the energy. We can't do those virtually. And I really, I I was a big believer in that. And then we have no, right now we have no choice, right? We can't be in person Mm -hmm. and we have to be talking about it. And I found that you can do that. There are things you need to make sure you, put in place, I feel like, to make sure people feel included. But, um, but you can absolutely uh, do this uh, virtually, even though, you know, we do miss people and you do miss a little bit of the energy in the room and those things. But um, I think that uh, we've been able to be effective. So we're just going to keep on, keep on trying. 
Yeah, just like us right now, you can still have a face-to-face yeah. human interaction. Uh, it isn't, I'm not going to say it's replacing it, but I've read some stuff that they said if you work remotely long enough and you'll forget it if you if you talk to people in person or on a screen at some point, it's just all blurs together. And and I also, just when I'm listening to you talk and, and, and we've I've been in management a long time, we have these same conversations. It does seem like COVID kind of helped us really start to define what the business purpose of things were. So it's like, you sound like a very relationship type of person mm-hmm. and getting in relation with people, but, uh, and you probably always were, had the business purpose, but I think like this sort of new world we're in, like we have to really define our business purpose and our goal if we're going to achieve it. And um, it, it's, I think it's going to focus, force us to be a little more focused and intentional because I think we got kind of used to always showing up at meetings in person and a few people would be on the phone or maybe they would be on a video. But now it's like everybody's on the video. So we're all participating at the same time. We're all sharing a screen. Mm-hmm. Some people didn't get the email with the document. I mean, I just feel like there are some some efficiencies that we can take advantage of if we just open up our minds to the possibility that being in the room all the time isn't necessary. Yeah, I agree. Can I also just share something since we're talking about equity during this? Um, black friend was telling me that he was reading an article that was Zooming while black. I don't know if you've seen this or, but there's an I article about that. And folks were talking about how, you know, the code switching and how you um, folks, and it's not just for black individuals, it's for lots of different folks, but how people of color office often feel like they have to portray or be a certain way, or they, they're worried about people. Um, and, and this isn't just for them, but I feel like um, if you read this article, it was saying that uh, the backgrounds and what, what's in their house and they're being judged and, and there's a lot of fear around some of those things. And so that was a very interesting article. I'm really glad he told me about it because I'm trying to figure out. So with my employees of color that I work with and my colleagues, how do I make sure they know, like, just be you. It's okay. You know, like, how do you create this safe space um, and, and try to help people feel like they don't need to code switch. Right. But, um, Mm -hmm. but I, I, you know, there's a lot more conversation we had around that. I need to understand it better, but I, it just, um, it was interesting. So uh, even though everyone's like, yay, zoom or Google hangouts or whatever it is, there are some things we should be thinking about related to equity um, as well. So, uh, but I have more to, more to learn on that, but I just wanted to mention that I um, have been hearing that side of things as well. Well, thank you. Um, so getting back into this idea of a successful collaboration, since we like to talk about collaboration here on this podcast, and maybe you have an example of a, of a collaboration, a story that you've worked with judicial officers, probation officers, or court staff um, in Colorado, but if it's not Colorado, that's fine too. As we think about expanding diversity, equity, and inclusion in our work and integrating it into the way that we plan and implement our programs. Yeah. So, um, again, as I said, I think it's important to think critically about who's at the table and I've got two different examples that I'm trying to, one of them included someone from judicial, um, actually, but this was about bringing young people to the table. And then I have got one, um, that's a little more recent that's around X. So I'm going to share the more recent one right now. And then if you want to hear more specifically about the, um, judicial representative, I can share that as well. But so, um, we, every five years, the public health department, um, say public health department has to develop a plan, um, for public health. Uh, It's called a public health improvement plan. And we brought together people from all backgrounds, different levels, different sectors, as I mentioned, um, before we had public health experts and we had community residents at the table, um, dialoguing and making decisions together. And at the beginning, you know, that's kind of, you got to, we had a, a woman who owned a bar restaurant um, from Evergreen on the group. She's amazing. She helped us throughout the two-year process. And then we had, um, you know, uh, some uh, a physician, right, who um, worked at Denver Health, a totally different um, perspective. And, and we had these folks at the table together. And so in order for it to be a successful collaboration, you really need to get to know each other, right? So you want to be professional, of course, and not like everyone has to tell their whole life story, but it's really important to build time into collaborations around building relationships because building relationships equal building trust. And when you have trust, the rest of the work is much easier. When you, you know, when you, I know you've been part of many collaboratives over the years, I'm sure when you come time to make a decision, but when people don't trust each other, it just, it takes so much longer. People, 
think about how they're going to say something rather than just saying the thing that needs to be said. So I really worked hard on making sure that we um, built a um, strong uh, relationship amongst the group. Um, and it's not only best practice in public health planning, but it resulted in recommendations that really address the needs of the community. So the community knows what they need, right? This is the whole, this is what all the research shows. Community members, whoever you're working with, they know what they need, but then also experts go and do all the, um, you know, data collection, the epidemiologists look at all the things that, what are the problems right now? What should we be addressing? And guess what? They're the same things, right? It was how we should address housing, right? Housing's a big issue. How do we address systemic racism? That came out in it. Behavioral health. Behavioral health was a big one. People who are dealing with behavioral health issues know that that's a big issue. So it was, it was nice to have the experts and the data and the research, but then you also have the community residents who are experiencing these things and coming together to, to talk about what needs to be addressed. And so that whole process, I feel like, was um, extremely um, it was rewarding because you see this group of people who don't know each other at all. And I remember I made them take a photo on the first day. I said, I know you don't know each other now, but I'm going to take a photo of all of you. And so I have this photo of them all kind of smiling like, yeah, we don't know each other. And I have that next to the photo of at the very end when they completed the plan and everything, you know, and they felt really excited about where they where they got to. So to me, that was a really successful collaboration and it wove in. It wasn't about just equity and inclusion, right? It was about, public health and what should our priorities be? But it, we wove equity and inclusion into it by making sure we had diversity, right? We addressed the social determinants of health or the root causes of all these health issues that we're seeing. So through all of that, I feel like you could call it a DEI effort, right? Because it really mm -hmm. um, wrapped all those things up. And so that was, that was really a fun project that was sort of recent. And what's the trick to, you know, I, I think sometimes just getting the right people to come to the initiative could take some time. And it did. like you were talking earlier, we're action oriented and how long do are we willing to wait to get the right people? But I, from what I'm hearing you say, you really have to spend that time. If you're going to have an initiative that's going to really be equitable, inclusive and diverse, um, it's going to take you longer to get your group together. And it sounds like it's going to take a little time for that group to kind of find their you know, integrate as a, a, that's, that's really interesting. Did you have all the same people in the picture at the end as well? Did you keep um, them for the whole? I have to say almost all, there was a couple, there were a couple of people who uh, changed positions, like changed organizations even. And they remained on the group because they were, oh, nice. they felt so connected to it. It was, that was actually really, I felt very proud of that because they were so interested in the initiative. They asked their next employer, Hey, is it okay if I stay on this group? It's really, you know, impactful. So yeah, most of them were, I think we had one person who had to leave fully, but, um, but it was, yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, and so can I just answer the question about, yeah. you know, how we brought people to the table? So I created um, an application process, just like a Google survey kind of thing. And I only asked, I think I asked three questions. You know, I did ask about what is, what is your experience on um, whether it's lived experience or experience in the workplace? You know, what motivates you to be part of this? Um, and can you commit the time? Something like that. Those are the general three questions. And what unique experience do you bring or something like that? And um, there were people who participated in this process the first time, like five years ago, or now it's longer, but the, the last time we had done it. And they were physicians of big health departments. And they have always been asked to be part of these groups. And so I was like, I want you on there, but you got to fill out the application and you got to take it seriously because I'm having other people review it. And so if you, if you just answer because I've always been a part of this or because I'm Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, like, you know, because everyone knows who I am and I'm important, you're not going to get in. Like I was honest and clear. And so we actually had um, a few different folks who don't know everybody review the applications for the applications. I think we had 65 applications and we ended up um, we were going to have 30 people on the group and we ended up having 35 because we wanted to make sure we geographically represented Colorado well. So we added a few extra folks. Um, and then we had our meetings in areas besides Denver. We, instead of just saying all of you come here all the time, we said, let's go to Grand Junction. So we went out to Mesa County, uh, Jeff Core, who runs the health department out there, did a presentation. We all got to see where he worked. Um, and it was, it was uh, really impactful and people, um, the rural folks said to me, you know, that was huge to see that you value coming out to our areas rather than just always expecting everything to be Denver centric. So that was another successful piece of it. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
And as we get better at, at sort of facilitating these online meetings, we, we may not be traveling as much, but we can still bring everybody together more easily. So yeah. that's, that's a great example. Is, yeah. I, I like your three, I like your three questions too. I think sometimes we overthink it. It's like, let's get down to brass tacks and, and let's find the right people for the right reasons. Yeah. And make sure when I, when I thought of those questions, I thought, what, a, what if I'm a, you know, 22 year old uh, person who has half time job and is working half t- or works half time goes to school half time. And I, but I care about uh, suicide prevention. Like how could I answer these questions and it could be equitable with, you know, the director of this health department or whatever. So that's kind of, again, it's like putting yourself in someone's shoes to try to think like, how could, how could I feel successful in answering these questions? So. All right. I know we're getting close to the end, so I don't, I don't, I don't want to leave anything out. So I'll just ask you now, is there anything else that you, that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about before we get to the question about the takeaways? I don't think so. I know I've done a lot of talking, so thanks for listening. It's kind of fun and cathartic to talk about this topic. I love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's so much packed in. I I really think our audience is going to, the audience is really going to take some nuggets away and really appreciate um, the time you spent with with me today. So what are your top three takeaways for taking action? Or maybe you have one big takeaway. It's up to you. Which one would you like to answer? So I have three and I thought about it because I wanted to be as succinct as possible because <laughs> of time. But I think, you know, again, just to form or strengthen real lasting relationships with people who are different from you, whether that's an organization, whether that's in your personal life, I think that really um, makes a huge difference with DEI. Um, you know, so don't just um, go out to communities when you need something, but really um, build those relationships proactively, listen to people, learn from them, start where they are. Um, that way you can have their voices in your head when you're making decisions and better yet, maybe even invite them to the table to make decisions with you. So that's a, that's a big key one for me. Um, the second one would be, you know, when working with community members, colleagues, and honestly, anybody focus on strengths first. Like we're really good at seeing the problems that need to be fixed. And I can only imagine being in judicial, like that's why they're there, right? It's because of the problems. But if you can try to take a strengths approach, I mean, just think about it when you're getting a review by your supervisor, right? If your supervisor came in and said, we really got to talk to you about these things. And they didn't say, you've done a great job this year on this, this, and this. Like no one wants to hear what the bad stuff is first. Like, and, and there are strengths in everyone, right? I mean, there really are. So focusing on strengths really helps, I think, build really positive relationships with folks. Um, and then the third thing which has always been my mantra is don't be afraid to respectfully challenge the process. Um, and one way I do that, um, and have done that my whole career is to replace statements with questions, um, during meetings, even if it's with higher level folks, you know, um, not, not just to say, here's my opinion on this, but have, what if we thought about it this way, you know, kind of that to really challenge our, so uh, interruption and disruption, I think is a really good thing. Um, and you have to do it with a little finesse to make sure people can stick with you and hear it. So those would be my yeah. three things I would say. I like all of them. The last one makes, it reminds me of curiosity. You, you come, even though you might have a strong opinion, you want to be curious in your question. Asking, yes, huh? absolutely. Thank you. That's, that's a great addition. Well, I have a coach and we work on that all the time. Oh, it's, nice. it's, it's sometimes hard though, but yeah. it is a great tool because it, it takes some of the sting or emotion out of it for both you and the person who's answering them. Absolutely. And it's always fun to kind of come up with a good question when you do it, right? You're mm-hmm. like, I'm going to use that one again. <laughs> all right. Well, here, here's the last part of this podcast, getting the note of guests. So I got a few questions for you. Okay. Um, first one is what surprised you today about this podcast? Uh, first of all, that government is doing podcasts at all. <laughs> to be honest, this is the only one I've heard of. And I'm already like, I got to go back to Mark, our, our comms director and say, we should do a podcast. I think this is a great format. So that honestly surprised me uh, about it and how uh, natural it is. I thought I was going to feel nervous when we were doing it, but it's, you, you make it really easy. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and I knew when I met you on the call, I just, I just, I just, since I've been recording podcasts, I was like, you're going to be a really good guest and you did not disappoint. So thank you for, for appearing again. Um, what's your favorite thing or place in Colorado? So I would have to say my, my uh, patio, my backyard with our fire pit. Um, I thought about this a lot. I know there's amazing mountains and there's beautiful lakes. There's all these things, but 
that's where my family, my husband and my two kids and I, you know, sit out, um, many nights and listen to music and talk. And so I just, it feels like a really safe, happy place for me. All right. Hey, nothing's better than home. Home sweet home, right? (laughs) Where is somewhere in the world that you dream of visiting one day? So for a long time, it was actually South Africa, because as I mentioned, I was born there. I hadn't been back for years, but just a few years ago, I got to go back um, and my mom took me and we got to visit where we were from. So that was amazing. Um, And that was a more interesting answer, I feel like. But I love the beach and I really want to go to Fiji and stay on one of those huts over the water. Um, It's just those, you know, you see them in the airport, those uh, advertisements, and it just looks so peaceful. And I love the beach. So I think that would be really fun. Okay. That's a good one. I've never been out that way, but definitely want to put that on the list. And what is your perfect meal? My perfect meal. So I mentioned I grew up in the South, right, for part of my life. And my mom is from Texas originally. So I would just have to say her fried chicken dinner will always be perfect to me because, Mm -hmm. again, home, right? Um, And it reminds me of my childhood. But I never could have admitted that if I was still working for the health department. So I'm really glad I'm not anymore. (laughs) So I can say fried chicken. (laughs) Well, I'm sure your mom makes the healthy fried chicken. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't think it's really healthy. (laughs) It comes with all that love, right? That's right. Zero calorie fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last thing. What is something you believed for a long time that you later found to be untrue? Okay, going going in alignment with my mom and the fried chicken and the southern cooking. I thought that Velveeta was actually cheese for quite some time because she, my mom would put that on everything and we, she talked about it like it was cheese. And I remember one day realizing at the grocery store, like this is not refrigerated. Oh my gosh, that's not cheese. So um, that's that's my one my one thing. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's really good. All right. Well, thank you again. I mean, I, I just appreciate you joining me today, sharing your experience and, 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 and uh, giving uh, some of your time to the podcast. And, and if you have any questions about getting one started, I'm happy to answer those questions. Uh, if, if I could be of any help to you and your department. That's awesome. I will definitely take you up on that because I think this is a great forum to get to know, um, to get deeper on some issues. And right now we need to, we need all sorts of types of learning. Uh, so I think it's fantastic. So thanks for the invitation. I'm really honored that you invited me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe we'll have you back sometime. In the meantime, uh, stay healthy. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond the Collab Battle. Listen, Learn, listen, lead, learn, take action, listen, learn, listen, learn, take action, learn, take action, learn, take action.